there! Thanks for listening to the Elevate Christian Church podcast. We exist as a church to connect people with God and each other. Today's message comes to us from our lead minister and preacher, Kevin Barton. We hope this inspires you, grows you, and challenges you in your faith and your walk with Jesus. Enjoy! Uh, I'm super, super excited because we're starting a series I've been looking forward to for, for a long period of time. Uh, we're calling it Noah uh, and His Ark. So most people, e- even if you didn't grow up in the church, know the story of Noah and his ark. You've got Noah, God tells him to build this big boat uh, because he's going to flood the world, uh, bring two of every animal, uh, two by two they went into the ark, and we as kids, we probably sang songs about it, we probably played with little Noah figurines and animals in a little ark. It's a very, very familiar story. In fact, it's probably the most familiar story that comes out uh, of the Old Testament. Well, the, the Bible records this true story of Noah, his ark, the flood, and then this great covenant that God makes with all of mankind. And so during this series, it's going to take four weeks, we're going to look at all four of those facets. Uh, today, we're going to start by looking at the man uh, Noah himself. We're going to do a little character study on this man Noah. Um, You may be surprised to know this, but Noah in the Old Testament is a biblical type of Jesus in the New Testament. In other words, it's a the life and the work and the ministry of Noah foreshadows the life, the work and the ministry of Jesus. We we call that typology uh, in the world of theology. It's a foreshadow or a picture of things to come. So let me just clarify. I'm not saying Noah and Jesus are the same person. Uh, that he is a picture of Jesus that is to come. So I brought with me my favorite picture. It hangs uh, on the wall right by my desk. It, you probably can't see it. That's okay. It is a picture of my bride, Lindy, on our wedding day. Okay, so this is just a picture. This isn't Lindy. I'm not married to this picture. Uh, you know, I don't kiss this picture uh, or, you know, hang out with this picture. It is just a picture of my wife. And so Noah is this picture of Jesus in the New Testament. And so the net result of that is you have a lot of these similarities in the life of Jesus, in the work of Jesus, and the life and the work of Noah himself. Uh, so let me just begin by, by giving you a few. Both Jesus and Noah were, were uh, righteous in a sinful generation. Uh, Noah was probably the only righteous man on the face of the earth at that time. Jesus came to this sinful generation. They both preached righteousness. Another similarity that they have, and we'll talk about this in a little bit further detail uh, on down the line here, but both were deliverers of mankind. We would not be here today. You and I would not be here today if it was not for Noah. He plays an integral part of us even being alive. And Jesus, we would not live forever uh, unless he delivered mankind from their sins. Both Jesus and Noah saved creation by their work. Noah saved all the animals and the the human race by his work on the ark uh, physically. And we know that Jesus saves all creation spiritually. Both 
save all that are in their household. Who was on the ark with Noah? His household, his family. All right. And so they were saved. We, when we become part of God's family, uh, we are saved in, in and because we live in God's house. And then both Noah and Jesus were pleasing to God. So, so you have these great spiritual connections between Noah and Jesus. Uh, just to set the scene, Noah, when he lived, the world was wicked beyond all belief. I think a lot of times in, in, in our culture, we think this, is a, this world's a bad place and we think, oh, I can't get any worse. It can. It was worse in the time of, of Noah. The, the world was cursed. Mankind was cursed. And mankind had degenerated into all kinds of evil things, which we'll talk about in, in a little bit. But Noah stayed the course. One of the fascinating things that I never thought about, even when I went through uh, Bible college and beyond, is, is, is the great connection that Noah might have had to the Garden of Eden. Like, this, he has this really cool connection to the original Garden of Eden. Um, Noah is ten generations removed from Adam. Adam is the first man, the original man. Okay, so think about this. In the Old Testament, people lived a lot longer than they do now. Um, Adam lived to be 930 years old. I love life, but I would never want to live that long. I want to go home to be with the Lord. 930 years old. So the net result of that, which was this really cool thing, is that, you know, Adam was able to watch his kids grow up. He was able to watch his grandkids grow up and speak into them. His great-grandkids, his great-great-grandkids, his great-great-great-grandkids, and on and on we could go. You're going to see a lot of generations in 930 years. Now, what's interesting is, we're going to be in Genesis 6 today, but before Genesis chapter 6, you have Genesis chapter 5. And, and if you follow what is called the ancestral lineage of Adam to Noah, you're going to see that Noah's father was a man named Lamech. Now, Noah had all kinds of cool family members, right? He had Enoch, who didn't die. God just took him up to heaven. He had Methuselah. That was his grandfather, who lived to be the oldest man recorded in the Bible. But he had this father, Lamech. Now, here's what's fascinating to me. Adam lived 930 years. When you begin to follow that lineage of Adam down to Noah, you find out that Adam would have been alive when Noah's father, Lamech, was born. Okay, in fact, he, Lamech was 56 years old, if you follow that genealogy, before Adam, the original man, died. Now, what makes this so fascinating and so interesting to me is that there's no doubt in my mind that Lamech, because he was from the line of Seth, that was the good line that kind of hung around Adam and his family, probably heard Adam talk about what life was like before the, de the degeneration of the earth and, and mankind. He, he, he was able to probably talk to Adam and find out what exactly life was like in this perfect Garden of Eden. What it would have been like to physically walk with God in the garden. 
what Adam might have felt like when, uh, unfortunately, boom, he was booted out of the garden. And how different the earth is through Adam's eyes from the beginning to 930 years later, this degeneration of mankind. And how Adam witnessed life in this perfect environment to what life was like now in the days of Noah. When Noah was alive, we find that the world is a wicked place, man. So Noah was probably able to talk to his father, who had direct connection to Adam, the, the original man. And, and, and I think those stories um, and those values Noah grabbed a hold of. And we find out that when Noah was alive, he's the only righteous man in this crooked and depraved generation. And I think that's why God uses Noah to save the world. So before we get into Genesis 6, let's look at the end of that uh, ancestral lineage of Noah. Uh, Genesis 5, 28 and 29. When Lamech, remember that's his father, had lived to be 182 years old. We think, you know, Abraham's cool because he had a kid when he was 100 years old. Lamech was 182 years old. He fathered a son. He called him Noah, saying, out of the ground that the Lord has cursed. Let me just stop right there. When we think of Genesis 3, the fall of mankind, we always kind of relay it to us, to, to uh, how it affects humans. It affected the whole earth. God cursed the ground. He cursed everything. Out of the ground that God cursed, this one, Noah, shall bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. So Noah would be the one that would bring relief to the entire world. So with kind of that out of the way, let's jump into Genesis chapter 6. We're going to pick up in verse 5, and this is where God is describing how bad things have, have gotten uh, in the days of Noah. He says this, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. So this wasn't like a little season of, uh, of evil. This was just continue. It just built. It was like a snowball. It just got worse and worse and worse. Just continual evil. Verse 6. I feel like I'm breathing like Darth Vader here. Let me pull this down. <clears throat> and the Lord regretted. Let me say that again. The Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth. Things have to be pretty bad for the Lord to, to regret, because he loves us. He regretted that he made man on the earth, and it grieved his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I've created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds in heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. I'm going to wipe everything out and start over. But then I love verse 8. Verse 8 changes everything. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Do you know if there were no Noah in the Bible, man's story would end in Genesis chapter 6, verse 7, with God saying, all right, that's, this, this is it. There's no one righteous. I'm going to wipe everything out. So our Bibles would be about this thick, just a few pages. Man's story would have ended in Genesis chapter 6, verse 7. But verse 8 changes everything. We're here today 
because Noah found favor in the eyes of God. And so what I want to do is I want to look at the character of this man, Noah, and I want to offer you five things that Noah did that caused him to have favor with God. And I think uh, we would be smart to try to emulate these things in our own lives. Here's the first thing he did. It's found in the very next verse, verse 9. He walked. Noah walked with God. Look at verse 9. So what it says, you know, verse 8 says that you have this man, Noah, who found favor with God. Verse 9, these are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. So he was a righteous man, which, which simply means he lived to please God. He was a blameless man, which means that he had integrity with people. And the reason he could be righteous and the reason he could be blameless had to do with who he was walking with, God. If you want to be blameless, if you want to be righteous, if we want to be people of integrity, if we want to be people of high moral character, we must walk with God. He, so Noah's blameless and he's righteous in spite of all other men on the earth around him acting evil. God thought so much of it that he reminds us again in the very next verse how bad the earth was, verses 11 and 12. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw on the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had been corrupted their way on the earth. So you see that word corrupt and corrupted a lot. The word corrupt in this text means rotten or putrid or foul, utterly foul, actually, in the Hebrew. So it's painting a picture. It's describing the world in its final stages of decomposition, that it was just about to, to, to implode on itself. It was about to die, kill itself off. So having rejected the Lord, the people in Noah's day, the, the men and women of the world had sunk into this deep pit of violence, abuse, murder, dishonesty, every ugly expression uh, and depravity the human heart can think of. If we are honest with ourselves, there's not a person in this room who has not thought things that are evil. There's not a person in here who, have not, who has, have not thought things that they would never dare speak out loud. Or, nor should we. Because the heart is wicked beyond all belief. But here's the difference between us and the days of Noah. We, lived in, we live in a civilized society. Okay, so evil thoughts are just left that way. We think those thoughts and we think, how in the world did that get in here? I, I would have never thought I would think of something so, so vile or so evil. And we, you know, we try to ask for forgiveness and we try to brush that out of our mind. They're just thoughts. They're never mentioned. They're never spoken. They're never written. And they certainly aren't acted upon. But in the days of Noah, the days before this great flood, evil thoughts became evil words that ultimately led to these unspeakable acts of atrocity, brutality, lust, and perversion. The unthinkable became thinkable. The unspeakable became speakable. And the undoable became doable. It's in the darkness of those days that this man stands out from the crowd. Noah, this bright, shining light in the prevailing moral darkness. In an impure world, he was pure. 
In an unrighteous world, he was righteous. In a world that dismissed God, he walked with God. Yesterday morning, I got up at 4.30 in the morning, two of my sons, Jay and Calvin. Uh, the three of us got up and drove out to Harrelson County uh, to, to go deer hunting. And uh, we got there really, really early. It was, it was still pitch dark. And so uh, my two boys now, they kind of hunt by themselves. I'll put them in a stand and they'll hunt by themselves. I, I, I try to stay somewhat close. Um, but there's this joke because we have all these coyotes on our property and we have bobcats on the property. And they're a little bit of, like kind of uneasy about walking in the woods by themselves to a stand at night. So, you know, I don't help matters. I'm like, y'all better be careful. Y'all are little. Coyote's going to run for me. But y'all look like breakfast. And so they're always a little antsy, you know, and they're like, well, at least we got a bow, you know, it was that type thing. Um, but so yesterday morning, my, my son Calvin, he's only 12, and he can't really navigate through the woods yet. And so I was talking about, you know, y'all better watch out for coyotes. And Calvin was like, shoot. He looked at Jay, he said, I ain't scared. I'm walking with dad. That's exactly what he said. Okay. And I kind of feel like this is Noah. Noah's looking around, the world is, is imploding on itself, evil is everywhere, people have probably even tried to do evil acts to him and his family, threatened him, and Noah's like, I'm not scared. And he wasn't scared because he was some great hero, he, he, he was not scared because of who he walked with. He walked with God. It was Henry David Thoreau who once wrote these words, if I seem to walk out of step with others... It's because I'm listening to another drum beat. And Noah listened to the beat of God. He walked with God. Second thing he did that caused him to find favor with the Lord is he worked. He worked. Look at verse 14. So God is going to give Noah instructions. He says, make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Hmm. Make rooms in the ark. And cover the inside and the outside with pitch. Pitch is stuff to waterproof the, the ark. And so after verse 14 in Genesis 6, you have all of these instructions that God gives. He, he, he lays out a blueprint. Here's how high I want the ark to be. Here's how long I want the ark to be. Here's, the, the, here's what you build with. Here's how you do this. Um, and you had all of these uh, you know, instructions. If I was Noah... I don't think I would have got to work right away. I, I think I would have asked some questions. Like question number one, okay, you want me to build a boat? Like, and I'm looking at the blueprint. There's never been a boat ever made of wood this big, God. And so you want me to do this? And I live 100 miles away from the ocean. Like, so I'm going to build this boat. How in the world are we going to get it to the ocean? Uh, I know you're talking about it, th th this flood, but I, this doesn't make sense. All right, and some scholars, it's a, it's a very popular school of theology, believe that before the flood, pre-flood, it never rained. Okay, uh, that the earth was under this canopy, was like a greenhouse type effect, and that when the God flooded the earth, he broke that canopy and caused it to fall on the earth. And so some scholars would argue that, that you know, God says build this ark because it's going to rain, and Noah built the ark not even knowing what rain was. All of these instructions on what to build. And then in the middle of those instructions, he says, here's why you're building the ark. Because I'm about to wipe everyone out. 
I'm going to flood the earth. I regret creating uh, mankind. And so there was a lot for Noah to do. And there was a lot for, of information for Noah to process. But look at the response after all these instructions, verse 22. Noah did this. You know how easy, how much easier life would be if God told us to do something and we just did it? <laughs> Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. Do you know how long it took Noah to build the ark? 120 years. So you think you got this never-ending project at your work? <laughs> 120 years. And I'm sure when he's out there looking for gopher trees and chopping gopher trees down, he's like, man, I'm sick of chopping gopher wood. Or I'm sure he got tired of pitching and tarring the boat. And I'm sure he got tired of all the ridicule. Look at that crazy guy building this boat. We don't even live anywhere near the ocean. What is he doing? But for 120 years, he just went to work. Day after day, working on the same project, hearing what a joke he was, obeying God by getting to work and doing what he says, even when it didn't make sense. You know, it's very easy for you and I to obey God when it makes sense, right? When God kind of shows us the light at the tunnel, I want you to do this and this because if you do this and this, you'll end up here. It's really easy to obey God when it makes sense. But the test of faith comes in, for, in our lives when we obey God, even when it doesn't make sense. You see, a lot of people want to walk with God, but they certainly don't want to work and obey God. They don't want to follow his commands. They don't want to wait for God. So for 120 years, he waited and worked for God. We get impatient if God doesn't answer our prayer in 120 seconds. God, what's going on? I prayed for this like two minutes ago. Where's my flood? You know, where, 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 what's, what's going on? We get so impatient. Not Noah, man, he just kept working. Every day is unto the Lord. He just kept being obedient to God. I'm sure a lot of this didn't make sense to him, but he did it anyway. But when that first drop of rain fell to start the flood, I think it all came clear to Noah. I had a friend of mine, she, was a, she is an elementary school teacher, uh, and in her classroom over uh, on the wall beside her desk, she has this little plaque, and I used to love that little plaque, it simply says this, plan ahead, it wasn't raining when Noah built the ark. You see, life doesn't always make sense to us because we don't know when the storm's coming. We don't know when the wind and the rain and the waves are coming. So we just work diligently for the Lord, trusting that he knows when it's coming. So he walked, he worked. Number three, he witnessed. He witnessed. So Noah was this shipbuilder by day, and he was this preacher of righteousness by night. So his day job was building the ark. His nighttime job was preaching the gospel. Um, so it kind of looks like this. All day long, Noah's chopping down gopher wood. He's tarring and pitching, and he's planing wood, and he's building the ark, and he's getting sweaty. Roll, rolls in the house, jumps in the shower, eats, eats some dinner with Mrs. Noah, and then he takes off into town. And every night, he's preaching. He's witnessing. Um, did, I, did I read 2 Peter to you already? 2 Peter 
2 Peter 2, 5 says this, He did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness. That means a preacher of righteousness, a witness of righteousness, with seven others when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. Every night, man, Noah rolls into town and he preaches the same sermon for 120 years. It was a simple three-word sermon. It's going to rain. It's going to rain. Y'all need to be ready. It's going to rain. It's going to rain. And, and it was just rejected. For 120 years, he just kept, kept preaching it. He just kept witnessing and telling people to repent because it was going to rain. When you and I became Christians, when we gave our life to, to God, when we started our walk with God, we were called to do the same thing Noah's doing right here. We were called, we were expected, we were commanded to be witnesses for Christ. Acts chapter 1 verse 8, this is before Jesus ascends to the Father and he's leaving instructions for the disciples. And in verse 8 or verse 7 he says, I'm leaving. Verse 8, here's what he says. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit <clears throat> has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. So what we typically do when we read that about being a witness for God is a lot of times we start from the outside in. We, we go to the end. Okay, so I need to be a witness for God to, to, to all ends of the earth. All right, well, let me pack up my mosquito net. Let me go to Academy and buy a $90 pair of, uh, you know, Columbia zip-off pants, jungle pants. I'll get a big bottle of bug spray and a big Bible, and I'm going to fly off to the jungle for a week-long trip because I'm going to be a witness to the ends of the earth. Not dogging that at all. I think that's great. But I want you to think about this scripture we just read, Acts 1, chapter 8. Jesus says, you will be my witnesses. What's the first place he mentions? In Jerusalem. Jesus was talking to a bunch of people, and guess where they lived? In Jerusalem. He's saying, listen, start in your area, start in your Jerusalem, be my witnesses in, in, in your cul-de-sac, in, in your local bar, in your gym, in your coffee shop, by your house, in your grocery store, in your school, in your office, in your home. That's our Jerusalem. I think we fail to witness to the most obvious people, those that God puts right in front of us in our Jerusalem. So Tim Harlow is a preacher up in Chicago, and he has this great little book called Life on Mission. Um, and he makes the following point. He says this, and this is scary to me, that America, our country that we live in now, is one of the largest mission fields in the world. In America, we have 195 million people who don't acknowledge God or go to church. 195 million. So if, that, if those 195 people were a nation, they'd be the fifth largest nation in the world. Right here in America, living in our neighborhoods, going to our schools, working in our offices, hanging out in our parks, eating in our restaurants, all these people need to hear about Jesus. But we've got a witness to them. I'll throw out another great book if, if you like to read it's a book entitled The Rise of the Nuns. The Rise of the Nuns. Now, it's not like Catholic nuns, 
All right, it's The Rise of the Nuns, N-O-N-E-S. It's a great book. It's by James Emery White. And here's the whole premise of his book. I don't know if you've ever had to do like a, fill out a survey, uh, you know, uh, and when it gets to like the religious section, what, what type of religion are you? And it'll say, you know, are you Catholic? Are you Protestant? You know, are you Jewish? Are you Hindu? You got all those boxes. Well, you'll notice on one of those boxes, there's the word none. None. I have no religious affiliation. It, it, does, it doesn't concern me. Okay. Do you know right now in America, the number one box checked is the word none. Just, I have no religious affiliation. We're living in a very post-Christian culture. So I want you to stay with me for a minute. If 195 million people around us don't go to church, and the fastest growing religious affiliation are those believing in nothing, I think it's safe to say we're living on a mission field today. Right here, right now. And we've all, you and I alike, have been given this responsibility, the same responsibility of Noah, to be a witness for God, to, to herald his message. And we too, like Noah, have a three-word sermon. Remember Noah's three-word sermon? What was it? It's going to rain. Our three-word sermon is simply this. Jesus loves you. Amen. Jesus loves you. Yeah, but I'm so, you know, I'm so addicted to this and this substance and I've got this going on. Hey, man, it doesn't matter. Jesus loves you. So he walked, he worked, he witnessed. Number four, he worshiped. He worshiped. Hebrews 11, 7 is this great hall of faith where Paul is uh, talking about all these Old Testament people that had this great faith that you could brag about. And one of those guys was Noah. Look at verse 7. By faith, Noah, being warned of God concerning the events as yet unseen, don't miss this phrase, in reverent fear, constructed an ark. In reverent fear. If you have reverent fear of somebody, it's a sign of respect. I really respect that person. To talk about somebody in a reverential way or treat a family heirloom with reverential care is to act out of a deep, almost solemn kind of respect. In, in the text, it's implying that this was worship. He was building the ark, but his love for God was so devout, all he could do was worship while he built the ark. He stood in awe. You've heard the expression, whistle while you work? Noah worshiped while he worked. You see, Noah found favor with God because Noah knew how to worship God. He didn't just worship him during the allotted hour of worship. Rather, he worshiped God all the time. Just out there cutting gopher wood, making animal cages, giving praise to God. So some of you, most of you have a distinct advantage over me. I, I work with people that are saved, like, you know, all, all the ministers here at Elevate. You guys work in the marketplace. So let me ask you a question. This is going to sound really strange. When is the last time you worshiped at work? When's the last time you brought a worshipful attitude, Christ just spilling out of you at work? Now just pause in your head for a minute and think. Like when's the last time you've showed up at work 
you know, just humming a, humming a worship song and just had to, to pause in, 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 and, and, and say, thank you, God, for, for giving me the ability to come to work. Thank you for my paycheck. I'm somewhat addicted to it because I need to provide for my family. Uh, thank you, God. I'm just here to worship you. Or when's the last time you worshiped at work by just writing a note of encouragement to somebody you know who needs it? Or you have your headphones in and, you, you know, a lot of places let you do that now. You just got your worship music blasting, just worshiping at work. Or how about worshiping at work by just working as hard as you can? I'm going to worship God by giving 100%. Colossians 3.23 says, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. Now, listen, I'm not saying, don't get the wrong picture. Uh, the preacher says, I got to worship at work. So you roll in there with your yoga mat and put it on the ground, and you sit Indian style and light candles all around you and start, you know, holding your hands up, re reciting the Lord's Prayer. That's not worship, that's weird, right? But so when's the last time you've just brought this attitude of worship to work? You, you see, here's what I'm trying to get at. When we think of worship, nine times out of ten, we think of this. We call this our worship center because this is our worship service. Okay. And so, but to me, worship is not a nine o'clock service or a 1030 service. Worship is a state of being all the time. Dan, Dan Kimball has this great little book. Also, it's an older book. It's called Emerging Worship. All right. And, and he, he gives some pretty, pretty cool statistics here. The average person, and we're all pretty average, I would think the average person is awake 112 hours every week. Okay, so that's assuming you sleep eight hours a night. Now there's, a, there's, you know, if you're a teenager, you might sleep more. If you're, you know, older, you might not sleep as much. I, you really can't sleep when you get old. It's what I hear. <clears throat> I don't know. <laughs> but 112 hours is, is, is what we get a week as we're awake. If a person goes to a worship service, and I'm going to give you the benefit of the doubt, you're going to go to two worship services. All right, so you were, you were here at 9 and you're here at 10.30. That's about two hours a week. So if you go to a worship service for two hours a week, you get 112 hours, but you're worshiping two hours a week. This means that 98.2% of our week is not a worship service. For most people, worship involves this right here. This is it. So for most people, worship involves 1.8% of their time. Now, this is crazy to me because we are called to be witnesses for Christ 100% of the time. So we need to find ways to get God into that 98%. Worship's a state of being. It's always being thankful, always praying to God, always asking Him to God, always walking with Him. So Noah had this state of worship. So he walked with God, he worked for God, he witnessed, he worshiped, and then finally, I think the last thing that made him pleasing to God was that he wanted. He wanted. Let me ask you another question. What is the single most important thing to you? Think about that for a minute. What I mean by that is, what do you want more than anything in the entire world? world. I can tell you what it is for me. I don't even have to think about it. I mean, it's just, it's just like that. The most important thing for me in this world is, is that my family is saved. 
period. I want them to know Jesus, to love Jesus, to serve Jesus, to witness for Jesus, and to spend eternity with Jesus. That's all that matters to me. I've got five little hearts that God said, here, you shepherd them, you take care of them. And that's my number one wish, is that they are all saved. Now listen, there is no doubt that a big part of Noah's motivation was because he walked with God. Because he was righteous and he was obedient to God, so he built the ark. There's no question that that motivated Noah. But I think there was another motivation for him. Look at Hebrews 11.7 again. By faith, Noah, being warned by God's concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark, don't miss this, for the saving of his household. Listen, the most notable thing that we can do, that we can wish for, that we can pray earnestly about is salvation for our family. Noah knew that those who were on the ark would be saved. So he built the ark in part to save his family. He wanted his family saved. So if I could just speak for just a second, ladies, to the men in here. For, for just, a, just a microsecond. M men, th the most important thing that we can do for our families is show them the love of Christ. Is to model it for them. To model what it looks like. To shepherd and protect diligently their little hearts. And to diligently pray for them. And try like no other to lead them to Christ. Because nothing else matters. When Jesus rips open the sky and God takes what's left of this earth and throws it into the pit and eternity begins, it will not matter how many baseball tournaments your child won. It will not matter what prestigious college they graduated from. It will not matter how successful they are in the world's eyes. It will not matter how they fit in with this culture here. The only thing that matters when you strip everything away is that those little hearts are saved, safe and secure in the arms of Jesus Christ. Amen. Everything else, everything else, everything fades away. And I love the example given to us by Noah. I love the power of a godly example. I love the power of a godly husband and a godly father. I'm sure when Ham, Shem, and Japheth, Noah's son, sons, came to him and asked him about God, he didn't say, well, go ask your mother. I'm sure he studied and diligently found the answer because he, want, he wanted his family to be saved. We got a lot of males in this country, but we don't have a lot of men. There's a big, big difference. Men, God holds us accountable to set the pace for our entire families. Our sons and our daughters will be like us for better or for worse. And I promise you that if you live out your faith every day and you're honest and when you make mistakes and you apologize, every day you live your faith, it's natural and it's normal to expect your family to follow in your footsteps. The story of Noah and his ark is this story of God having to cleanse the earth with water through judgment. But before he does, 
He invited, Noah preached for 120 years, anyone who comes inside this ark will be saved. My question for you is, have you made it into the ark? We hope you enjoyed listening to our podcast today. If you'd like to learn more about Elevate or partner with us in what God is doing here, check out our website at elevatecc.com. Until next time, God bless you and thanks again.